It's an evening of old-time radio. The Equitable Society presents This is Your FBI. This is your FBI, an official broadcast from the files of the Federal Bureau of Investigation, presented as a public service by the Equitable Life Assurance Society of the United States. To your FBI, you look for national security, and to the Equitable Society for financial security. These two great institutions are dedicated to the protection of you, your home, and your country. Tonight's file, The Serviceman's Fraud. The war is over and the fighting men are coming home. But for the FBI, the war, the fight against fascism is not over. In a sense, it still goes on. Because the fight against democracy still goes on. Not only overseas, but right here in this country. In a Midwestern state, for example. Where a thin, white-haired man named Martin Bessemer was trying to form an organization called the United Brotherhood of America. Bessemer made his speeches in a large hall. And in his audiences were many veterans of our war against fascism. Directly behind this hall, he had his offices. A large outer reception room and a small inner office used only by Bessemer, by his red-haired secretary and by his business manager, a hard, quiet-faced man called Frank Kingston. Leila, hmm? you finished typing that letter? It's right over there. Oh, okay. When's Bessemer going to sign it? As soon as he finishes rousing the rabble. <laughs> oh, oh. <laughs> oh, you know, baby, a million copies of this order open a few thousand vets with plenty of separation pay. They could all hear him talk. You know something funny, Frank? Hmm? I listened to him the other day. And you almost believed him. Almost? If I'd had my purse, I would have handed over the membership fee and joined up. <laughs> well, the more suckers who feel that way, the more money in the bank for us. For us? Yeah. We're in it together, baby. Frank. Huh? When are you going to get him to sign that check? I told you that when... When the he... time comes. Yeah. And I told you, I'm not going to sit around here waiting for dollar bills to start... Hello, Mr. Bessemer. Hello, Frank. Hello, Lila, my dear. Hello, Mr. Bessemer. Uh, you've been working hard today, haven't you? Pretty hard. Well, I'll take your dinner tonight and make sure you're getting enough to eat. Oh, uh, here's the letter we drew up, Mr. Bessemer. Ah, uh, thank you. Uh, the United Brotherhood of America has a particular appeal for our veterans. I realize their plight and promise to give every honorably discharged man who joins the Brotherhood a battle bonus amounting to... I've never promised anything of the kind, Frank. Well, there are a couple of million vets waiting for somebody to lead them someplace, Mr. Bessemer. You know, vets with dough. You want to get them to join, don't you? Well, naturally. Then sign here. Oh, now, look. You hired me to boost your membership. Sign here. Kingston. 
Nobody tells me what to do. Nobody. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry, Mr. Pessimer. I didn't mean to sound as though I were giving orders. I was just thinking that if we can pull in the vets, the organization ought to get big enough to swing your election at the state legislature. Or maybe even Congress. Hmm. Well, in that case, uh, let me have your pen, Frank. Okay. Here. Uh, thanks. Uh, there we are. I'll pick you up about six, uh, Lila. Okay. Goodbye, my dear. Bye. Goodbye, Frank. Uh, goodbye, now. He'll pick me up at six. So what? So we'll have dinner and he'll slobber over me again. All right. All right, nothing. What kind of a guy are you to let someone else take your You won't be bothered much longer. No? No. Our friend just signed his last will and testament. This letter? Yeah. It's going to mean a killing for us and a finish for him. How? Well, it's going to hook a lot of poor fish, baby. But it's also going to make somebody start an investigation. For instance? I don't know. But when they come around, we're going to be gone. And Mr. Martin Bessemer is going to be left holding the bag. It's easier to get a mailing list of veterans. And it's easy to stir up some of those veterans. The end of the war doesn't mean peace for the country. It means a period of transition, reconversion, change. Many fighting men who have come home want that period to be swift and sure and right. So when they read a letter like Martin Bessemer's, many veterans get excited. Some want to join his organization. And some, some react the way a boy like Eddie Butler did. Eddie is calling on his girl. Sorry I kept you waiting, Eddie. Like my new dress? Huh? I asked you if you liked my new dress. Oh, yeah. Yeah, new, isn't it? Eddie, when we get married, my clothes... That bird ought to have his head handed to him. What are you talking about? I'm sorry, honey. A letter came this afternoon. I didn't get a chance to read it. You read it now. Put it away. But look at it. I don't want to. It's from a gent named Martin Bessemer. He's the head of an outfit called... The United Brotherhood of American Wars. I know. How do you know? My brother Bobby got one this morning. What'd he say? Oh, I don't know. He said he wants to join. Join this? Yes. Well, he can read, can't he? Listen to this. The United Brotherhood is an organization restricted to members of the Caucasian race. That's a fancy way of saying Aryans. All right, Eddie. And this juicy little warning that we veterans have to rise up and throw the foreigners... All right, Eddie. But, Nora, don't you see... Give me that letter. Nora! I'm sorry. I don't get it, honey. I don't get you. Me? Eddie, sit down. No, here by me. Okay. Darling... I know it was pretty bad overseas, and you went through a lot. But you're home now, darling, and the war's over. The fighting's over, you mean. What? As long as there are weasels like this Martin Bessemer around, it's not over. Look, honey, I I get mad, but don't try to chalk it up to combat fatigue or anything like that. I get mad because I see that maybe there's a chance all that fighting was for nothing. Eddie, that's silly. Silly, yeah, and your kid brother joins a peachy little group restricted to members of the Caucasian race. He's a kid, and it's a small, unimportant organization. There are a couple of million kids, and plenty of these small, unimportant organizations for them to join. No, I am mad. I don't like it, Nora. I don't like that it's going on, and we let it go on. What can we do? I know what I'm going to do. What? 
I'm going to join Mr. Bessemer's little restricted bunch. What? He'll get me into one of his meetings so I can find out what he's up to. If he's up to what I think he is, Mr. Martin Bessemer better watch out. Martin Bessemer did not know that the FBI had been checking on his activities. But he'd been smart enough to stop just short of a violation for which he could be arrested. And now one of his letters come to the FBI's attention. Martin Bessemer. Yeah. According to the files, Dan, he's been spreading his poison since 1937. He was mixed up with a bun, but he went into hiding as soon as we invaded North Africa. Smart boy. Uh-huh. But now he's out again. We've never been able to get anything on him. Even this new organization he's trying to get started has a bona fide setup legally. Well, maybe this letter is what we've been waiting for. I think it is. As a matter of fact, I think he's bitten off more than he can chew in this one sentence right here. Look. He promises to give every honorably discharged man a battle bonus. Yeah. Probably sucked in a lot of members that way. But if he can't pay off, we can put him out of business. Right. Beats me how a rat like that can keep going anyway. It's a wonder that someone doesn't get so mad at him that... Well, let's get moving. We'd better take a good look at Mr. Martin Bessemer's books. Well, it's about time you showed up. I've had my hands full, Lila. Who was she? Oh, stop being cute. I just had a big session with some vet named Eddie Butler. He's out to knock Bessemer's block off. I know. He was here before. But we've got a bigger problem. What do you mean? I had a visitor. A gentleman named Sherman. Sherman? From the FBI. What do you want? To look at the books. You didn't let him? No. But he said he'd be back at three. Hmm. It's almost that now. I know. What are we going to do, Frank? It's going to be all right, baby. It says here. I tell you, it's going to be all right. All this means is that we clear out a little ahead of schedule. Without the money? With the money. Well, he hasn't signed that check yet. He will. Hello, Lila, my dear. Hello, Hello, Frank. Oh, I'm glad you're here, Mr. Bessemer. Uh, Anything wrong? Well, yes, we've gotten some disturbing news. What? Well, the FBI was here to look at our books. The FBI? Why? Well, I guess it's because of that last letter you sent out. One where you promised the boys a battle bonus. You see, if they look at our books and find that you can't pay that bonus... They could send you up for fraud. Go on. Well, I've got a check here already for your signature, Mr. Bessemer. It's for the money in our account. Well, uh, what do you plan to do with it? We can take the money and run. Take it and run? Yeah. You cheap jinx! Don't be so easy with your hands, Mr. Bessemer. You've got everything ready, haven't you? You knew this was coming and you planned for it. So what? You cheap little racketeer. Easy, Bessemer. Uneducated scum that'll do anything for money. I warned you. You are scum. You're from the slums and your parents were... Now maybe you'll keep your hands to yourself. He's dead, Frank. I don't care. What are you going to do? What are we going to do, you mean? What? We're in it together, baby. Remember? And we're good. What's the matter? Somebody's in the outer office. Huh? 
I heard him. We'll see who it is. Just open that door a crack. Oh, Frank. Go on. It's that boy. What boy? That veteran, Eddie Butler. The one who wanted to knock Bessemer's head. <laughs> We're both thinking the same thing, baby. Oh, Frank. It'll work. Come on. Help me lift Bessemer's body behind the desk. Oh. Why? You don't want the kid to see him when he walks in. No. <clears throat> now, where's that check? It's here. What are you going to do? Get out the back door into the bank before it closes. Oh, the check's not signed. Uh, that's okay. I know his signature. Frank. Stop worrying, baby. I'll get in touch with you and let you know where I am. You won't forget. We're in it together, aren't we? Yeah. We're in it together, all right. Okay. Here. What? Take my gun. You know what to do with it, don't you? Yeah. So long, baby. Mr. Butler? Yeah? Come in, won't you? Thanks. You're waiting to see Mr. Bessemer? Yeah, I saw him come in here and then... Say, did I hear a couple of shots? Shots? Why, no. Not from here. Oh, what you must have heard... What's the matter? Look behind the desk. Huh? Holy... It's Bessemer. And isn't this yours? What? This gun. Here, take it. But... It's yours, isn't it? No. Oh, yes, it is. Come in. Oh, Mr. Sherman. I'm so glad you're here. This man just shot Mr. Bessemer. We momentarily close the Equitable Society's presentation of the Federal Bureau of Investigation file on The Serviceman's Fraud. We will return to this case in just a moment. There's something about the name of the Equitable Life Assurance Society of the United States that seems to arouse quite a lot of interest. Again and again, people say to us, By the way, why is the Equitable Society called a society? Well, that question is easily answered. The Equitable Life Assurance Society is called a society because it is a society, in every sense of the word. It is an association of men and women who share the conviction that contentment and security depend on practicing the basic American virtues of thrift and self-reliance and cooperation. We who are members of the great Equitable Society family know that it isn't enough to work for ourselves alone. We know that we do better when we lend each other a helping hand. And that is why we have joined forces in the Equitable Life Assurance Society of the United States. We have combined our dollars into a common protective fund, which gives each of us far more security than he could attain by his own unaided efforts. The fact that three and a quarter million Americans think this way and have become Equitable Society members gives our organization tremendous stability and safety. At the same time, the fact that this is a society means that we individual members receive personal consideration and warm, friendly attention in all our dealings with the management. Finally, 
we have the satisfaction of knowing that our premium dollars are constantly invested in ways that benefit the entire nation. For, by serving its members, the Equitable Society serves America. And now, back to the file on The Serviceman's Fraud. A murder is committed. A murder that's buried in the back pages because the victim is seemingly unimportant. The killer seems to be unimportant, too. Seems to be a boy named Eddie Butler. A boy with a motive with a gun marked with his fingerprints. A boy who is actually seen by an eyewitness. The case seems open and shut, seems to be as simple as ABC. Nevertheless, the FBI, working with local police, investigates, and investigates thoroughly. You say Butler was here earlier, miss? Oh, yes. He was raving about getting hold of Mr. Bessemer and knocking his head off. But you got rid of him. Well, I thought I did. But then he came back about an hour ago. He just stormed in here and made a wild speech, and then he took out his gun and fired. That was a few minutes before three. Yeah. Well, I feel sorry for the kid, but that happened. What happened? Well, you know, those boys are trained to kill. They go overseas and do a lot of killing, and it just gets in their blood. They come home, see something they don't like, so they kill. Is that what Mr. Bessemer thought? It sounds like something he might have said. I guess you liked Mr. Bessemer. No. But it was a job, Mr. Sherman. You didn't mind working for a man like that? Well, I... I'm sorry. It's really none of my business. If there's anything else we want, I'll let you know. A murder is committed. But it was a letter which brought the FBI to this case. A letter involving a plan to defraud veterans. And so the books of the organization called the United Brotherhood of America are turned over to a special agent, while the agent in charge aids the local police to follow up the murder. Follow it up by sending the gun in the case to the FBI laboratory in Washington. Follow it up by interviewing Eddie Butler in his cell. Doesn't make any sense, Mr. Sherman. The murder? None of it. You know, I, I was thinking, suppose I really had shot Bessemer. He was a fascist. In the Army, they taught us what a fascist is, and overseas we saw him and killed some of them. Bessemer wasn't any different, Mr. Sherman, except maybe he was born here. Uh, don't try to make any sense out of that, Eddie. People go out of your head. You think I'm going out of my head anyway. Mr. Sherman, I, I didn't kill Bessemer, but I'm glad he was killed. And even if it hangs me, I'll keep saying that. So maybe I am out of my head. Eddie, uh, you're sure there wasn't anybody else in that office when you walked in? Just a girl. What about earlier? I thought I saw that guy go in, but I don't know. What guy? Some gent who'd been trying to get rid of me. What was his name? I don't know. What did he look like? Oh, pretty solid. A little taller than me. Kind of a thin, hard face. Dark hair. That's all I remember. And you don't know who he was? Well, he said he was Bessemer's business manager. Business manager? Yeah. Thanks, Eddie. Thanks very much.
you get out of the books, Dan? Oh, pretty much what we figured. Bessemer couldn't have paid off that battle bonus if he stood on his head. Not that he had any intention to. Of course not. Matter of fact, all the money was drawn out of the bank. When? About one minute before three. The teller remembered because he was ready to close up. Well, Bessemer was dead by then. Sure. But I don't know who the man was who cashed the check. Probably countersigned with a phony. Yeah, that's what I figured. The check's on its way to the lab. Good. I got a description of him, though. Slightly over medium height, dark hair, thin face. Say, that sounds like the same man Butler described. Really? Yeah. This is beginning to make sense, Dan. There's somebody else in this. Somebody who was possibly double-crossing Bessemer. Somebody who possibly murdered Bessemer or helped the girl murder... <clears throat> Hello? Sherman speaking. Yeah. Yeah. Where? Thanks. What was that? A report just came in on the gun. Serial number was filed off, but the lab got it anyway. Could they trace it? Well, the last place they traced it to was a pawn shop over on the south side. Now, look, we don't want to arrest you for selling the gun. We just want to know who you sold it to. I told you. I don't know his name. What did he look like? He was, oh, a little shorter than you. Dark. Kind of a... Wait. What? I just remembered. His name was Frank. That's what she called him. Frank. That's what who called him? The girl who was with him. A very pretty girl with red hair. Here's a report on the check, Dan. Was it a forgery? Sure. Same guy who countersigned it forged it. What's his name? Kingston. Frank Kingston. We have a lead on where he's hiding. Williams traced a call the girl made him last night. Well, let's get him then. Yeah, there's a catch. What? We can probably hold him on fraud, forgery, larceny, but... but how do we get him on murder? Yeah. As long as that girl sticks to her story, we're... You know, like... if there were only some way of getting one of them to double-cross the other... Say, I have an idea. What's that? The old bellboy trick. It might work. They've never seen you... So if we can get that girl over to Frank Kingston's apartment tonight... Isn't there anybody to run this elevator? Hey! Hey, isn't there anybody... Take it easy, lady. Who are you? Bellboy, clerk, elevator boy, what do you have? Now, since this is an elevator, what did you think? Ah, sorry you had to wait. We had a lot of checkouts today. Dump like this, I'm not surprised. What floor? Five. Five? Yeah, do you mind? No, I don't mind. Only I don't think there's anybody up there. What? Well, there was only two people. 503, she checked out this morning. And 514, he checked out a few minutes ago. 514 couldn't have. I just spoke to him on the phone. Yeah, I know. How do you know? Also worked the switchboard. Lady calls, and two minutes later, 514 calls to say he's checking out. I don't believe you. Well, see for yourself. It's right over here. He checked out. No, it's open. Frank. Frank. See? What did I tell you? So he's gone. Sure. Oh, that's great. That's just dandy. Little Frankie's gone for a walk with his pocket stuffed with money. That's beautiful. Something wrong? No, nothing's wrong. Everything's fine. 
Where's your phone? What are you going to do? Call the police. That man who checked out murdered Martin Bessemer. I saw him do it. I don't think you'll get very far, miss. Mr. Sherman. He's still downstairs waiting for you. Downstairs? Sure. This is 614, Lila. Six? But but this elevator, boy... Also house detective and FBI. So that's the way it is. Yeah. What do you think Frank is going to say when he hears the news? I think I know. He'll say we're in it together, baby. Frank Kingston and his female accomplice were tried and convicted by local authorities on the charge of first-degree murder. Kingston's death reminds us that there are men in this land who say they are Americans, who perhaps think that they are Americans and yet speak openly and loudly against the principles of freedom and equality, the principles of democracy. There's little difference between such men and the enemies across the seas whom we have conquered. There's little difference between such men and the criminals they so often employ, for they are criminals themselves. In the end, they will be caught, because their crimes are crimes against the people, against the government, against the FBI. about next week's case in just a moment. Tonight, will you join the Equitable Society in a salute to an industry which shares the responsibility of passing on the wisdom of the world from one generation to another, an industry which makes possible the great system of free education for everyone, which is one of the foundations of our American democracy. Yes, a salute of gratitude to the book publishing industry of the United States. During the war... The publishers rose to the emergency and supplied over 90 million specially manufactured paper-bound books to the armed forces, almost 800 titles, about eight books for every serviceman or woman. Now that peace is here, we will look to the book publishers for more than 10,000 new titles each year. These will range from the scientific works, which carry forward the torch of progress, to the fiction, which relaxes you in your hours of leisure. For many years, funds of the Equitable Life Assurance Society of the United States have been invested in the book publishing industry. In fact, Equitable Society funds have been a consistent factor in the growth and development of most of the great industries on which America depends for full employment and continued prosperity. Just as Equitable Society dollars were fighting dollars in wartime, so at all times they are security dollars for you your home, and your country. Next week, we will bring you another thrilling story from the files of the Federal Bureau of Investigation. The file on The Desert Dictator. The incidents used in tonight's Equitable Society's broadcast are taken from the files of the Federal Bureau of Investigation. 
However, all names used are fictitious, and any similarity thereof to the names of persons living or dead is accidental. Programs in this series of particular interest to servicemen and women are broadcast overseas through the worldwide facilities of the Armed Forces Radio Service. Tonight, the music was under the direction of Leith Stevens. The author was Arthur Lawrence. Your narrator was Reed Hadley, who appears through the courtesy of 20th Century Fox. This is your FBI, is a Jerry Devine production. This is Dick Joy, speaking for the Equitable Life Assurance Society of the United States and inviting you to tune in again next week at this same time for This is Your FBI. The Equitable Society presents This is Your FBI. FBI, an official broadcast from the files of the Federal Bureau of Investigation, presented as a public service by the Equitable Life Assurance Society of the United States. To your FBI, you look for national security, and to the Equitable Society for financial security. These two great institutions are dedicated to the protection of you, your home, and your country. Tonight's file, The Strange Extortion. Hardly a day passes that some person of large income or great wealth does not receive a letter demanding that he pay the sender a certain sum of money or suffer the consequences. The usual implication is death to himself or some member of the family. True, most of these extortion letters are written by cranks who never carry out their threats. But the FBI must investigate them all. And quite often, the letters are the real thing. Tonight's case from the files of your FBI involving attempted extortion is one of the most extraordinary stories of its kind on record. Flintrock was a wholly appropriate name for the old secluded Long Island estate. For it not only described the volcanic outcroppings about the place, but it suited the character of the despotic old woman who ruled the cold gray stone house with perpetual ill temper and a passionate contempt for all under its jagged roof. Although Letty Bradford could seldom leave her bed, her irascible spirit haunted every room and had long since made Flint Rock a house of mutual hates. It is now one minute after nine o'clock in the morning. Letty Bradford reaches for her stick and... Janet! Janet! Oh, that stupid nurse. Janet! Oh, about time, young lady. Good morning, Mrs. Bradford. Nearly two minutes after nine, Janet. I'm sorry. That's no excuse. You know very well I want my breakfast at nine o'clock, and nine o'clock doesn't mean two minutes after nine. Yes, Mrs. Bradford. I suppose you stopped to poison the orange juice. No, Mrs. Bradford. 
Don't tell me the thought hasn't occurred to you. No, Mrs. Bradford. Of course it has. It's occurred to all of you. And why should it? Don't question me and don't look at me that way. You're all too impatient for me to die. You can't wait for my affliction to kill me. You're too eager to get your ungrateful fingers on the money I've left for you in my will. I don't expect any money. You've always paid me for my services. Inefficient as they are. Shall I pour your tea? Don't you always? You want me to drink it, don't you? You said for me to pour it. There are some poisons that cannot be detected in a body, aren't there? Yes, there are several. Hmm. I won't drink the tea. Take it away. Take it away, I say. As you wish. Well, don't stand there tapping like a woodpecker, Charles. Good morning, Mrs. Bradford. Good morning, Janet. <laughs> Another Judith. I beg your pardon, Mrs. Bradford. Take the tray, Janet. How long have you been my secretary, Charles? It will soon be ten years. Hmm. You must have robbed me of a tidy sum in that length of time. If you think I have, why don't you have me arrested? Nonsense. I admire your ability to hide your pilferings. <laughs> what have you got there? The morning mail, of course. Oh, don't bother me with mail this morning. Where's my adoring niece? Miss Darrell is... I know. Sleeping it off under a pile of ice bags. Uh, Miss Darrell stayed in New York last night. Well, they have ice bags there, too, don't they? What's that? A letter addressed to you marked confidential. Confidential poppycock. Open it. I didn't want to without your permission. Open it. Mrs. Bradford. Well? It's an extortion letter, and they threaten well, to... Well, don't have a stroke about it. But they threaten your life unless you... Unless what? Unless you pay them $30,000 by noon tomorrow. Pay who $30,000? You are to wrap up that amount in bills of small denomination and see that the package is left in the alley behind the North Shore Bank building in Island City and say nothing to the police... Or... or they'll bash my head in, I suppose. I'd better get Judge Madison on the telephone right away. You'll do nothing of the sort. Some crank nonsense. Throw the letter away. But, Mrs. Bradford... You heard me throw it away. Very well. Charles, wait a minute. Yes? Why should anyone ask for $30,000? Why not 25000 or fifty, or 100000 Why 30000 It is an odd amount. Ah, there may be something to this after all, Charles. Get Judge Madison over here right away. I wouldn't be surprised if all this weren't some scheme of your own, Tom Madison. Oh, my dear Letty. Of course, I could use $30,000 to good advantage, but... Can't uh... you wait until I die, either? As executor of the estate, you'll be able to milk it for a whole lot more than that. Uh, come now, my dear. This is a serious matter. What's serious about having my head bashed in? That would be a happy event for all of you. Oh, please, please, my dear. If the letter is a genuine extortion letter, you have until noon tomorrow. And you may rest assured, my dear, 
Before then, I'll see to it that you have ample protection. I don't want a lot of to-do about this in the papers, you understand? The FBI doesn't operate that way. What does the FBI have to do with it? This is a federal crime, and I must report it to the FBI at once. Judge Madison drove swiftly into New York and went directly to FBI headquarters, where he reported the case to Special Agent Hugh Barnes. And here is the letter, Mr. Barnes. Uh-huh. Well, this looks like the type of stationery ordinarily used for social correspondence. And whoever sent the letter was careful to use a typewriter. Now, typewriting can be as incriminating, Judge Madison, as handwriting. Each set of type leaves its own peculiar mark. But they don't necessarily prove who did the typing. No, but it's a good clue anyway. Oh, yes. Yes, of course. Now, who occupies the house with Mrs. Bradford? Besides the servants, there's Mrs. Bradford's personal nurse, Janice Smith. Well, what do you know about her? And not much, except that she has attended Mrs. Bradford for three years. Single? Yes. A young man calls on her once a week, I believe. Well, what's her attitude toward Mrs. Bradford? Uh, frankly, Mr. Barnes, no one has any real affection for Letty Bradford. Well, from your description of her, that's understandable. Who else lives there? Her secretary for almost ten years, Charles Forbes. Single, about uh, 34. Does Mrs. Bradford have any children or other relatives? Only a niece, Daryl Bradford, about 27. Very attractive. Also single? As Daryl says, she's uh, still playing the field. <laughs> uh, nightclub style. It has a generous allowance, I suppose. Not always generous enough. I've had to clear up her gambling debts from time to time. For large sums? Well, they've varied in the past. I say past because three months ago, Mrs. Bradford swore she would never settle another one. Now, what about the servants? Well, there'd be no reason to suspect any of them except, uh, well, uh... Except whom? The chauffeur, Floyd Parker. He likes his drink a little too much, and occasionally he's disappeared for two or three days at a time on what he calls a little bottlenecking. I see. And Mrs. Bradford says she had a row with Floyd on the subject two days ago and fired him. Anyway, Parker's gone. Morley. Yes, Barnes? Get a complete description of Floyd Parker from Judge Madison and start trying to locate him, will you? Right. There are a couple of angles I want to go out on for a while, Judge. Would you be good enough to meet me this evening at the Bradford house? Certainly. And please see that everyone's there, including Daryl Bradford. Good evening, Miss Darrell. What's good about it, Charles? I'm sorry I had to call you. You didn't tell anyone where I was? Certainly not. Thanks. Now, why should I have to come all the way out here because that old, you name it, got some kind of crazy letter? The FBI agent wanted everybody here. FBI agent? Yes. He's been all over the house for the last two hours. He's in the library now, and he's already fingerprinted all of us except you. What? Yes. You mean he... he suspects that one of us? I guess it's their job to suspect everybody, Miss Dell. Uh, Mr. Barnes, uh, the agent, asked me to have you come into the library as soon as you arrive. All right. I'm Daryl Bradford. 
They say you want my fingerprints. Oh, please, if you don't mind. Were you expecting me to object? Do you? Why should I? It'll only take a moment. Now, press your right fingers on this ink pad, please. Good Lord. wonder if I've robbed any safes lately. Well, probably not, or you would have paid off your gambling debt to Nick. Now, press your fingers on this card here. What do you know about Nick? Well, he's a dangerous man to owe $30,000 to. Now, the left fingers, please. All right, so you know about it. But I didn't write that letter. I didn't say you did or you didn't. If I didn't, who did? I haven't found out yet how many people know about your debt. And a lot of people, including you, would benefit by Mrs. Bradford's death. Have you finished with me? Well, for now, yes. Oh, please send the nurse, Miss Smith, in, will you? And I'd rather you wouldn't leave the house. Very well. You're in charge. Barnes speaking. This is Morley. Any trace of the chauffeur? No, not yet. I just called to tell you I've also put out a five-state alarm for him in case he decided to roam. Good. I'll be here for a while yet. Thanks. Well? Oh, uh, this is a sheet of your stationery, isn't it, Miss Smith? Where did you get it? Out of your room. Then I guess it's mine. Why? Well, the extortion letter was written on a sheet of paper exactly like this. And that makes me guilty, I suppose. I didn't say so. If anybody wanted to get $30,000 from Mrs. Bradford, it probably would have been... Then you knew about Darrell Bradford's gambling debt? Charles knew about it. He told me. I thought he was supposed to be a confidential secretary. Charles gets sort of confidential with me, too, Mr. Barnes. Oh? Excuse me, Mr. Barnes. Oh, yes, Charles? Uh, Judge Madison called over the other phone a few minutes ago. Said he'd been detained, but was coming right on over. Thank you. Oh, that's all for now, Miss Smith. Charles. Yes? Do you recognize the typing on this sheet of paper? Well, it... It's the same style, I think, as... As the typewriter I use. That's right. I typed this on your machine. But what for? I mean... Well, it's just possible that under a microscope, it'll exactly match the typing on the extortion letter. Look, Mr. Barnes. I didn't have anything to do with it. We don't reach conclusions until we get all the facts. Why should I try to extort money from Mrs. Bradford? I'm well and taken care of, and her will, and... Uh, what? No! 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 Come on. Charles! It's Mrs. Bradford, Janet. She's been shot. Miss Darrell! I'm coming! momentarily close the Equitable Society's presentation of the Federal Bureau of Investigation file on the strange extortion. We will return to this case in just a moment. A quarter of a century ago, a great American president, Woodrow Wilson, saw the need for world cooperation. He urged the nations to get together, to drop their rivalries, to form a united front for world peace and security. Today, the ideals of this far-sighted leader are an inspiration to those who are planning to banish injustice, war, and aggression from the face of the earth. Members of the Equitable Life Assurance Society of the United States will be proud to learn that this great advocate of international cooperation was a member of their society. Like Woodrow Wilson, 
This society also stands for security through cooperation. In fact, the equitable society is an excellent example of the advantages of cooperation. Instead of trying to struggle with their security problems alone and unaided, three and a quarter million Americans have joined forces in the equitable society. Instead of continually worrying about the financial future of their families, equitable members have shifted that burden onto the broad shoulders of their society. The peace of mind which they gain makes them better workers, better fathers or mothers, better citizens. Yes, by serving its members, the Equitable Society serves America. So remember that name, the Equitable Society, the Equitable Life Assurance Society of the United States. And now back to the file on the strange extortion. In the case of Letty Bradford, mailing the extortion letter was a federal offense. But when Mrs. Bradford was found apparently dying of a bullet wound above the right temple, Special Agent Hugh Barnes called Inspector Blanton of the Homicide Bureau, who took charge of the house and posted men to see that no member of the household tried to leave. Agent Barnes, however, continued to conduct the investigation. Letty Bradford's doctor, Inspector Blanton, Barnes, and the nurse, Janet Smith, herself under suspicion in connection with the letter, have been in Mrs. Bradford's room for some 30 minutes now. Judge Madison, who arrived shortly after the shooting, is standing outside in the hall with Charles Forbes, Mrs. Bradford's secretary. The door opens and Barnes steps out. Well, Mr. Barnes, Mrs. Bradford, The is bullet she... didn't penetrate as we thought at first. The pistol was evidently fired at such an angle as to cause only a deep scalp wound and severe powder burns. You mean... She's unconscious now, but largely from shock. She'll live. Oh. oh. Judge Madison, did you ever see this gun before? Why, yes. Was that the pistol that was found on the floor behind her bed? That's Mrs. Bradford's pistol, Barnes. Mrs. Bradford? I didn't know she had one. Yes, Charles. I bought it for her myself three weeks ago. Said she wanted one for protection, so I humored her. Thank you, gentlemen. You know where I can find Miss Darrell? Oh, yes. She went downstairs just before you came out, sir. I saw her going toward the library. Thanks, Charles. And, uh, Judge Madison. Yes? Inspector Blanton says no one is to leave the house just yet. If you'll excuse me now, please, sir. Nick, it's not my fault if she doesn't die. I didn't do the shooting. What? Well, if she lives, you'll just have to give me more time. I can't raise $30,000 like an umbrella. All right, do anything you like about it. I didn't intend to eavesdrop, Miss Bradford. I didn't call Nick, Mr. Barnes. He called me to hound me about the money. I told him what had happened, and I... Oh, all right, believe what you like. I'm on my way to New York. I merely stopped to give you the doctor's verdict. Your aunt will live. Good night, Miss Bradford. Morning, Barnes. 
You don't look very happy. Ah, just mixed up, I guess, Morley. No trace of the missing chauffeur yet. Not yet. What about the pistol? There are no fingerprints on it. I can't understand anybody leaving it behind the bed in the first place. You got to her so fast, I don't see how they had time to escape. Well, they didn't use the window. That's a cinch. Do you suspect anyone in particular yet? Well, look, Morley, it's easy to suspect nearly everybody out there. Most all of them have acted funny about one thing or another. The nurse about the stationery, the secretary about the type, Daryl Bradford about $30,000. And they all stood to gain by Mrs. Bradford's death. Yes? Here's the laboratory report on the extortion letter, Mr. Barnes. Good. What's the verdict, Barnes? That's very interesting. The extortion note was typed on the secretary's machine. Yeah? And the only fingerprints on the letter are his. Oh, wait a minute. Here's something else. Also found on the stationery were microscopic traces of purple suede fuzz. Uh-oh. As if it had been handled by someone wearing purple suede gloves. I'll take it. Barnes speaking. Oh, hello, doctor. Yes? Yes, I see. I'll be there. Thank you very much. That's Mrs. Bradford's doctor. He wants to keep her quiet for the rest of the day, but says she should be able to talk to me by tonight. Good. In the meantime, I'm going to do a little checking on Nick today. And if you get any word on the chauffeur, call me at the Bradford house tonight. Right. Special Agent Barnes spent the rest of the day investigating the movements of the gambler Nick and his men during the past 24 hours, but could uncover nothing involving them with the shooting or the extortion letter. Shortly after dark, Barnes forged his car through a rain and windstorm sweeping Long Island up to the Bradford house. Letty Bradford could talk, but claimed she could remember nothing that happened. Barnes then assembled the others in the library. Charles. Yes? The extortion letter was typed on your machine. But, Mr. Barnes, I tell you And your fingerprints were also found on the letter. Of course they were. I read the letter to Mrs. Bradford. I had to handle it to read it, didn't I? And, Miss Smith, your fingerprints were not found on the stationery used, but there were traces of fuzz from purple suede gloves. I never owned a pair of purple gloves in my life. And Mrs. Bradford was shot with a pistol which you say you bought for her, Judge Madison. Good Lord, Barnes, you don't think I'm I... not accusing you or anybody else here of anything, Judge. I'm merely setting down some facts, and I... Excuse me for butting in, Barnes. Morley, I thought you were in New York. Well, I thought I'd better bring him out instead of phoning. The police found our men. All right, come on in. Parker. I don't get the idea of all this. Are you Mrs. Bradford's chauffeur? Mrs. Bradford's ex-chauffeur. Oh, you're just the man I've been waiting to have a talk with. Will you come into the other room with me, please? Thirty minutes later, Special Agent Barnes emerged from his talk with the chauffeur, whispered something to Janet Smith, the nurse, who immediately set off upstairs. Then Barnes called Judge Madison to one side. Well, Barnes? I think I have it all cleared up now, Judge. Parker, the chauffeur? No, but he was very helpful. He... he knew something? Yes, something that completely clears Miss Darrell, the nurse, and Charles. Oh? I was finding it awfully hard to suspect any of them anyway. Why so? Well, Miss Smith wouldn't have been so obvious as to use her own stationery. For the same reason Charles wouldn't have typed the letter on his own machine. 
And Miss Darrow? Oh, she needed $30,000, all right, but she's too intelligent to have demanded a sum which everybody, including Mrs. Bradford, knew she owed to Nick the Gambler. That sounds reasonable, but... Oh. I think I found what you want, Mr. Barnes. Yes. I'm afraid you have, Miss Smith. Judge, I think you'd better come upstairs with me. All right. Mrs. Bradford? Well, what are you and Tom Madison up to? When you fired Floyd Parker three days ago, you gave him a handsome sum of money to soothe his feelings. Well, what if I did? It's my money. You also gave him a letter to mail. A letter addressed to yourself. What are you trying to say, Are these your purple suede gloves? Well, I... uh, Oh, certainly they're mine. What are you doing with them? The person who wrote the extortion letter used Miss Smith's stationery, Charles's typewriter, the amount of Miss Darrell's gambling debt, and wrote it while wearing purple suede gloves. Well, what did they do? And did? furthermore, she sought to escape an uncomfortable death from disease. At the same time, put the suspicion of murder on the beneficiaries of her will, whom she holds in contempt, by attempted suicide with a gun registered in Judge Madison's name. Well, Mrs. Bradford? All right. All right. I did it. It's all true. And I have only one regret. It didn't work. As a public servant charged with protecting the lives, property, and general welfare of all citizens... The FBI is just as diligent in establishing the innocence as well as the guilt of persons involved in a crime. In the case of Letty Bradford, there were five persons on whom the shadow of guilt fell. But Special Agent Barnes was not willing to arrest any one of them for the crime because of lack of sufficient incriminating evidence. Instead, his investigation was directed at removing from over them what shadow of suspicion was there. And in doing so, he discovered the person who was guilty. You'll hear about the disposition of this case in just a moment. But now, will you join the Equitable Society in a salute to the American industry which employs more men than any other except farming? An industry which is most typical of democracy and free enterprise because it is made up of many thousands of little businesses. A salute to the architects, engineers, lumbermen, the contractors, plumbers, electricians, masons, and carpenters who constitute America's great building construction industry. During the war, these were the men who built army camps and vitally needed factories almost overnight. During the post-war years ahead, this is the industry which will be the wheel horse of our national prosperity. Authorities estimate that the building construction industry will erect one million homes a year for the next ten years and will give employment to four to five million men. Today, the need for more manpower is acute in this industry. 
and that can be counted on to provide large numbers of jobs for ex-war workers and returning servicemen. For many years, the Equitable Life Assurance Society of the United States has been closely associated with the building construction industry. Equitable society funds have made possible the construction of countless homes, factories, and business buildings. Every time a member of the Equitable Society pays a life insurance premium, he knows that his money is helping to make jobs for millions of his fellow Americans. For just as Equitable Society dollars were fighting dollars in wartime, so at all times they are security dollars. For you your home, and your country. Because of her physical ailments and extreme old age, no formal charges were filed against Letty Bradford. Next week on the Equitable Society's presentation of This Is Your FBI... Be sure to hear the adaptation of the forthcoming 20th Century Fox motion picture, The House on 92nd Street, relating the counter-espionage work of the FBI in protecting the secret of the atomic bomb. Featured on this broadcast will be the original stars of the picture, William Ive, Lloyd Nolan, and Sidney Hassel. The incidents used in tonight's Equitable Society's broadcast are taken from the files of the Federal Bureau of Investigation. However, all names used are fictitious, and any similarity thereof to the names of persons living or dead is accidental. Tonight's broadcast was directed by William M. Sweets. The music was under the direction of Frederick Steiner. The author was Frank Ferries, and your narrator was Dean Carlton. This is your FBI is a Jerry Devine production. And now this is Carl Frank speaking for the Equitable Life Assurance Society of the United States and inviting you to tune in again next week at the same time for This is Your FBI. The Equitable Society presents This is Your FBI. This is your FBI, an official broadcast from the files of the Federal Bureau of Investigation, presented as a public service by the Equitable Life Assurance Society of the United States and the Equitable Society's representative in your community. Before opening tonight's file, this first broadcast of 1946... This first week in January is a good time to look forward into the future and back at the past. We of the Equitable Life Assurance Society of the United States are happy to report that the end of World War II finds our society in a stronger position than ever before. Our membership, our assets, and the amount of life insurance owned by our members increased during the war years. So the Equitable Society has weathered this war as successfully as it did three previous wars and seven major depressions. We wish to report also that in the future, as in the past, the premium dollars of Equitable Society members will be invested in ways that benefit the entire country. 
And by serving its members, the Equitable Society will continue to serve America. Tonight's file, Crime in the Roaring Twenties. This week, as America begins the first year of another post-war era, she faces here at home, just as she did some 25 years ago, those many grave problems which grow out of war. But of them all, none is a greater menace to the right of American citizens to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness than that problem which is splashing more and more black ink across the front pages of our newspapers every day. Crime. Addressing the International Association of Chiefs of Police recently, Director J. Edgar Hoover of the Federal Bureau of Investigation, your FBI, uttered this warning. After every great war, there has been a recession of moral fortitude. This one will be no exception. I hope, as you do, that the racketeers, the overlords, the desperados, and the criminal scum who characterize the Roaring Twenties will not come back to the American scene. I fear, however, that this is wishful thinking. Once they get a start and find they can succeed, we shall face very serious trouble. It is the delinquent youngster of the war years who is now graduating into the ranks of seasoned criminals. They are now becoming the postgraduates of crime and are committing the more despicable offenses. It was the delinquent youngsters of 1917 and 18 who graduated into the seasoned criminals of that post-war era who made the Roaring Twenties roar. Roar with the explosions of pistols, machine guns, and pineapple bombs. Will it happen here again? This is how it happened then. This is how one delinquent youngster of 1917 became a postgraduate of crime in the Roaring Twenties. In the cellar room of the Black Cat Club, the roadhouse just outside a large Midwestern city, the slot machines and dice games, as usual, were taking more than giving. While upstairs on the main floor, the young hip blast set were drinking bootleg liquor in dim corners and dancing the black bottom to a pasty-faced orchestra. Presently, young Red Martin and two companions sweep into the room and take over a booth in a corner. Hey, waiter. Yeah. Give these guys a setup and bring me a Coke, will you? Okay. What's with the Coke? Why don't you take a real drink, Red? None of that rot gut for me, pal. You can't make dough out of it and ulcers, too. And I'm going to make dough out of it. Yeah? How do you mean? I'll tell you all about it in a minute. Hey, look. Yeah? A couple of dames over there making a big play. Forget them. I'll show you something with real class. Where? That blonde. Huh? There she goes now, toward the back. Hey. That's for me, fellas. Are you kidding, Red? You know who that is? That's Legs Miller's dame. I know. Guy that runs this joint? Yeah. Look, stupid. Don't you know who Legs Miller really is? Yeah, I know. He does a little bootlegging. A little? He ain't in the pint and quart business. He runs the stuff by the truckload. Yeah? Sure. And he's the guy I'm here to do business with. Are you huh? kidding, Red? What are you set up, boys? Your coke, Red. Okay, say, uh... Tell Casey I want to see him. Sure. 
Now, before this Casey gets here, I want to tell you guys something. Okay. Up to now, we've just been playing a nickel and dime rackets. It's time we graduated. How? We'll hook up with a gang like Legs Miller's. Make some real dough. And if we're smart, we'll have our own business before you know it, okay? Well, well, gee, Red, I... Uh... What's the matter, you yellow? No, no, of course not, you but... You want to see me, Red? Yeah. Well, what about? You know what about, Casey. Yeah, but Legs ain't... Don't the... give me that. He's here. I saw his dame go back a minute ago. Look, Red, the guy is busy. I want to see him. Now. Okay, kid. Come on. Stick right here, boys. I'll be back with a deal. Legs. Yeah, Casey? Hey, uh, you got a minute? What is it? I, uh, I got a guy here. I want you to talk to you. Okay. Bring him in. You want me to leave? No, stick around, honey. Go ahead, Red. Okay. This here is Red Martin. Hi. Hi, Legs. What do you want, kid? I want to talk business. I'm not a kid. <laughs> he means now he's shaving, honey. <laughs> but where did he get those big shoulders? You like him, sweetheart? What do you mean by that crack, kid? Darling, he means do I like him? And I do. Look, Legs, do you want to talk business or don't you? Okay, Mr. Martin. What kind of business? Did Casey tell you anything about me? Yeah. What's on your mind? Well, I got a proposition for you. Yeah? You've been doing pretty good for yourself, but you could be doing a whole lot better. No kidding. Yeah. Now, here's my deal. This will really put you on top. I got some guys, you got some guys. I bring my guys in and join up with you and work on a commission. Before you know it, everybody in the whiskey business is working for us. That's your proposition? Yeah. How's it sound to you? Casey. Huh? Bounce this bum. Wait a minute. I said bounce him. Keep away from me. I'll walk out of here under my own power. But I want you to remember something, Legs. Next time you and me get together, it'll be you that gets the bounce. What? And your dame here will get to stick around and try out these big shoulders. Boy, you... What happened, Red? Did you make a deal? No. But I made a promise. So let's get started on it. What are we going to do? First, we're going to get lots of power on wheels somewhere. Come on. Crime, like history, repeats itself. This juvenile delinquent product of World War I has his counterpart today. Somewhere in the nation, a youngster like Red Martin may be planning a similar career of ruthless violence. Let him listen, then. Listen and learn. The first report on Red Martin is received in the local office of the FBI. Special Agent Brown speaking. Morning, Mr. Brown, police headquarters. I think this is one for you FBI fellas. All right. What is it? Morristown, across the state line last night. Yes? Three young fellas stuck up an all-night garage and auto storage, slugged the man on duty, and escaped with a black Cadillac sedan. Mm-hmm. I believe they came back across the state line with it. What are the details? The garage man gave a pretty fair description of him. I've got all the facts about the car. Good. What do the thieves look like? Uh, one of them was about five feet eleven, big shoulders, red hair, seemed to be the leader. The other two... Give me your light, will you, Casey? You better wait. We, uh, we 
We've got to stop for this railroad crossing, you know. <laughs> Don't worry. I ain't taking no chances with a load of legs, booze. Well, looks clear to me. Give me that light okay, before we go. Okay, put your hands up and get out of that. What is it? Hey, what's the idea? Shut up and get out of there quick. They ain't fooling, Casey. We better haul out. Yeah. Go ahead, kid. Right. This is for not moving when I told you. <clears throat> Drag him over to the ditch, Al, quick. Okay. You know where to drive the truck, Joe. Get at it. Sure. Casey, I guess we better rough you up a little, too, so everything will look on the up and up for you when your pal comes out of it. Okay. And you better not ride the next load we knock off. Legs might start wondering. Just tip me off about it. Right. Hey, you know something? What? Knocking off this truck makes me and Legs partners after all. What's the story, Bob? It's the Cadillac we're looking for, all right. And I've got some fingerprints. They abandoned it right at the scene of the hijacking? Yes. The watchman at the crossing who saw it take place, said one hijacker drove off with a truck, and while he was calling the police, the other two disappeared on the run down the tracks. What about the two men on the truck? He was sure one of them was slugged, but by the time he made the call and got over there, there wasn't a sign of anybody or anything but the Cadillac. Since the victims didn't bother to report to the police, that tells what was in the truck. Liquor. Exactly. But why did the hijackers leave the Cadillac there? They don't have to worry about a hot car anymore. They can buy their own now. He obviously stole it to pull this job and get a stake. The start of a new gang, eh? Yes. So let's get busy and find out who they are and see how soon we can stop them. Hiya, Red. Oh, hiya, Joe. I've been looking all over for you. What's the matter? Huh? Nothing. I just thought we might get a couple of dames and go dancing. I'm a scratch. Why? I already got a date. Oh, yeah? With who? Legs Miller's dame. Huh? Yeah, I sent word to her. I told her I'd be here. Oh, you did, huh? What makes you think she'll come? She'll come. You know, uh, to mean plenty of trouble, Red. This kind of trouble I like. Yeah, but if Legs finds Wait a minute, wait a minute. Huh? You should come in the door. Blow, will you? Okay, but take it easy, will you, Red? Hello, shoulders. Hi, honey. Sit down. Thanks. You want a drink? No. Okay. How's legs? He's all right. Did you uh, tell him you were coming here? Now, what do you think? Well, he's got to know sooner or later. What do you mean? About us. <laughs> You're wonderful. That's right. What about us? We're in business, baby. Just like that, huh? Look, I had this figured months ago. And when I got ready for you, that's when I sent you the word. Really? Yeah. You see, there was a lot of things I had to do along the way. Get cars, which I got. Get dough, which I got. And now you... Which you ain't got. Don't be a sucker, baby. I'm your kind of guy. How do you figure that? You hear that music? Hear what the guy is playing? Yeah. That's my favorite song. That's why he's playing it. See the box there? Yes. It's loaded with them orchids. 
your favorite flower. And I got an order in with the jeweler for a ruby ring. That's your favorite rock. How did you know all this? I done research on you, honey. Now you see what I mean? I'm your kind of guy. You're forgetting something, Red. What's that? Legs. What about him? He's gonna have something to say about this. I figured that too, honey. You know something? I'm gonna give him a chance to, to say it. Gotta pay a call on Mr. Legs Miller tomorrow night. I found the dealer finally, Jim. Good. He sold them two second-hand Cadillacs. Here are the descriptions. Registered in what name? Jack Smith, obviously an alias. What did Jack Smith look like? The one with the red hair, according to the dealer. Mm-hmm. There's a report from Washington. Those fingerprints, Jim. Thanks. Did we get anything? On the redhead, yes. His name is George Red Martin. Served six months in a reformatory in 1917. Here's the full description and photos on the way. Good. I think I'd better get over to police headquarters and see if they have anything on the private life and public habits of said George Red Martin. All right, you guys, listen to me a minute, will you? Now, here's what I figure we do. Yeah? Yeah? Oh, hi, honey. Come on in. Hey, what is this, Legs? A convention? No, sweetheart. It's sort of like a reception committee. For who? Mr. Casey. Oh. The boys here got some kind of bad reports on him. Like what? He's been hanging around with that punk Red Martin, which just about accounts for a lot of that liquor we've been losing lately. Yeah? Hi, Legs. Come on in, Casey. Okay. What is this, a meeting or something? Yeah. A real important meeting. It's about you. What do you mean? Where have you been tonight? Oh, I was uh, was just down collecting a little dough I had riding on an egg. Why? Let's see the dough. Oh, sure. Here, I... Get up. Now, wait a minute, Legs. What's the matter with you? The horse's name was Red Martin, wasn't it? Red Martin, I don't know what you're talking about. Okay, boys, pick him up and take him out for a little ride. Now, wait a minute, Lakes. Give me a chance, will you? Get him out of here, quick. All right, get him in the air, everybody. Cover him, boys. First one he makes a move for his heater, gets a belly full of this. Hiya, honey. Hello, Red. Legs, this is what I told you would happen, remember? Yeah? I want all you guys to listen to me. I'm in it, I'm taking over. And you don't want to play ball with me, line up against the wall, and I'll check you off right now. Okay, then you're working for me. Hey, you, you come just in time, Red. Casey, get over there with legs. What? I said get over there. Oh, sure, but uh, what's your idea? There ain't going to be any double crosses in my outfit. Huh? You double cross legs, you might double cross me. I'll take it, both of you. Oh, all right, wait a minute. Honey, from now on, as long as you play it straight, these big shoulders are yours.
Now, for a moment, let's talk about another kind of youngster. The kind of clean-cut American boy in a typical American home who is going to be one of America's worthwhile citizens. This week at the Equitable Society, one of the agents told me a story that gave me quite a kick. It seems that when he got home the other evening, his young son, Jimmy, aged eight, was chewing candy. Well, like fathers everywhere, he said, Don't eat that candy now, Jimmy. You'll spoil your dinner. Where'd you get the candy, anyway? Fred gave it to me, said Jimmy. His father's in the candy business, and he brings home samples. Say, Dad, why don't you ever bring home some life insurance samples? Well, Jimmy's dad tried to explain. Look, son, he said, life insurance isn't like candy. Candy is something you can see and feel and touch and taste right now. But life insurance... Well, now let's suppose that Fred's dad should die. There wouldn't be any more candy unless Fred's dad had arranged for life insurance to keep Fred supplied with candy and food and clothes. Well, Jimmy thought a minute, and then he said, I get it, I get it. Life insurance is candy for when the samples run out. Candy for when the samples run out. That's something to think about. Life insurance is candy for future delivery, security for tomorrow. Well, thinking about that makes us of the Equitable Life Assurance Society of the United States feel pretty happy about the work we do. There's a real satisfaction in being in a business like this. You see, we always know that what we're doing today will benefit boys like Jimmy and millions of other young Americans far, far into the future. Yes, this week and every week for more than 86 years, the Equitable Society has been building security for you, your home, and your country. And now back to the file on crime in the Roaring Twenties. Red Martin and his companions, delinquent youngsters of 1917, had now graduated into major crime. And together with thousands like themselves, whose potential counterparts after this war were to be far greater in number, had added the explosions of their guns to the roar of the Roaring Twenties. It is now some 30 or 40 minutes after Red Martin's blazing Tommy gun put him on the little throne which had been occupied by the man called Legs Miller. The murdered man has been discovered. The police notified. They, the special agents of the FBI, are now viewing the bodies. That's Legs, all right. The other one, I've heard him call Casey. Who did it, waiter, do you know? Uh, let me answer that, officer. It was Red Martin, wasn't it, waiter? Well, I... Uh... Uh, it's Red Martin and his gang who've been knocking off Legs Miller's trucks. Is that right? I've seen Casey and Red Martin together. But why did Casey get it? I guess Martin doesn't want any double crosses on his staff. Find anything, officer? A couple of slugs on the floor that went clear through him. I'd like to have them for a lab check, if you don't mind. Here you are. Obviously, Martin doesn't intend to do business here. No, he'll probably set up a new headquarters. Waiter. Yes, sir. Did Legs Miller have a girlfriend? Yes, sir. Is this her picture on the desk here? Yes, sir. With all my love, honey... That's what she was called. We're taking this picture along, too, officer. All right, Mr. Brown. I guess we can go now. And let's keep our fingers crossed. 
This picture could be the clue to the whereabouts of Red Martin. Assuming you mean that when Red Martin takes over, he takes everything over. Right. Red. Yeah? What time is it? A little after ten. Thanks. Matter you tired? No, darling. Bored. What's the matter? Well, these past few days haven't been what you might call exciting. Now, look, honey, I told you. I know. We have to stay here until the heat's off. Couldn't you have picked someplace else for a hideout? Did it have to be two dingy rooms above a garage? We ain't gonna be here forever. We already have been. Who is it? Come on in. Hiya, Blondie. Hello, Junior. Want to see me, Red? Yeah. Tell the boys that tomorrow we start expanding. We do? How? We're going to start taking over Mr. Cicero's customers. That's a big order. I'm a big guy. Tomorrow the boys start calling on Cicero's customers to tell them from now on they're buying from us, okay? It'll be okay until Cicero decides to pay us a visit. That's what I want. It'll be a quick way to take over. We'll be here waiting for him. Pass the word on, Al. All right. See you later. After Mr. Cicero, do we hide out again? Come here, baby. Well? Look, just play along with us for a few more days, will you? Oh, I wish you didn't have those big shoulders. What luck, Bob? Enough, I think. What do you mean? I checked the photographer this morning who made this picture of Honey. Well? He said all he knew she was a nightclub singer. Mm-hmm. So I checked with the booking offices and I finally got this address. Whose? Her mother's on the north side. I'm bound to see her mother once in a while. We'll keep a 24-hour surveillance on the house and wait for Honey to show up. <laughs> Brown speaking. Jim, the girl just came home to see her mother. Yes? Better get over here so we can follow her back and pick up Martin. You follow yourself, Bob, and then come on in. Why? I want to pick up everybody at once. Yes, but how? You keep tabs on Honey and find Martin's hideout. I think I've got a way for seeing that everybody is at home when we go calling. Yeah? Stand over there by the window. Right. Now, find yourself by the door. Okay. And don't take any chances. Have your rods on that door when she opens. And, honey. Yes, sir. For the tenth time, go on back home to your mother's... Nothing doing. I'm staying here. Look, baby, that was Cicero that called and said he was coming over. Not a magazine salesman. Cicero. I'm not afraid of Cicero. So I suppose you like his shoulders, too. Darling. Okay, then get out of line of that door anyway. Hey, Red. Yeah? They're here. How many? Be careful. Get set for anything. They'll be upstairs any minute. But they won't all come up here. Never mind what stays downstairs. Just take care of what comes in that door. That's all we hey, have to... Listen, Red. Only one guy coming up. Yeah. Must be Cicero himself. Gonna try talking first, I guess. Shall we let him have it when he comes in? I'll take care of him. 
Come in. Evening. That's not Cicero. Hey. Who are you, pal? I'm Special Agent Brown of the FBI. FBI? You better get out of here. There might be a lot of shooting in a minute. There'll be an awful lot if any of you starts at Martin. Those are FBI agents down there, and they're ready to blast you to kingdom come. But Cicero I'm just... afraid I'm guilty of impersonating Cicero, Mr. Martin. What? We just wanted to show you how easily you boys can be taken over, that's all. Now drop your guns and file quietly downstairs. We'll go to headquarters and arrange futures for one and all. Young Red Martin's short and unprofitable career of crime ended with his death in the electric chair. The members of his mob were sentenced to long terms in prison. That was a page out of the Roaring Twenties, part of the criminal aftermath in America of World War I. Already the criminal aftermath of World War II is splashing black ink across the front pages of our newspapers. It happened before... It can happen here again. The FBI and your local law enforcement officers will fight it day and night. But it must be fought by all the people if it is to be licked. What are you doing about it in your community? Before we tell you about next week's case from the files of the FBI, a word about a man worth knowing. To the FBI, America looks for national security. And to the Equitable Society, three and a quarter million Americans look for the financial security of life insurance. These three and a quarter million people are the sole owners of the Equitable Society. Because you see, the moment they purchased life insurance through an Equitable Society agent, they became part owners of this great mutual organization. Yes, like your FBI, the Equitable Society representative in your community is constantly working for the security of you, your home, and your country. Next week, we will bring you another colorful story from the files of the Federal Bureau of Investigation. The Innocent Killer. The incidents used in tonight's Equitable Society's broadcast are taken from the files of the Federal Bureau of Investigation. The role of J. Edgar Hoover was impersonated. But all other names used are fictitious, and any similarity thereof to the names of persons living or dead is accidental. Tonight, the music was under the direction of Frederick Steiner, the author was Frank Ferries, and your narrator was Dean Carlton. This is your FBI, is a Jerry Devine production. And now this is Carl Frank speaking for the Equitable Life Assurance Society of the United States and the Equitable Society's representative in your community, and inviting you to tune in again next week at this same time, for this is your FBI. The Equitable Life Assurance Society presents This is your FBI.
This is your FBI, the official broadcast from the files of the Federal Bureau of Investigation, presented as a public service by the Equitable Life Assurance Society of the United States and the Equitable Society's representative in your community. Fathers and mothers of America, upon the training you give your children depends the future of America. Our system of free enterprise, personal liberty, and democracy cannot exist without educated and enlightened citizens. In about 14 minutes, our sponsor, the Equitable Life Assurance Society of the United States, will have some helpful suggestions for parents. If you wish to equip your children to take advantage of all the opportunities the future offers, don't miss this important message. Tonight's FBI file, The Night of Terror. This is 1946, the second year of the atomic age. And in almost every field of endeavor, man is breaking through new frontiers. But there is one field in which man has not changed his ways, the field of crime. Since the incident of the apple, there have been certain men who could not resist temptation the temptation to advance themselves at the direct expense of the rest of society. Those men we call criminals. And those men down through the ages have committed the same crimes. Crimes ranging from robbery to murder. Tonight's file opens at a summer resort located on the shore of a lake near a large eastern city. In one of the cottages overlooking this lake, two girls who work in the city are spending a hard-earned vacation. It is evening. One of the girls, Anne Madison, is dressing to go out. She calls to her friend. Ruthie! Yeah, honey? Do you mind if I wear your gold earrings? No, go ahead. Oh, thanks. What time is it? Just 8.30. Oh, good. Hey, come on in here. Let's see how you look. Okay. <sighs> well? Well, you look lovely. <laughs> oh, thanks. <sighs> in fact, you look so lovely, I hate to see it wasted. Uh, what do you mean? You know what I mean, Anne. That guy you're going out with. Oh, now, don't start that again, Ruthie. You don't even know Al. Hmm. I know his reputation. Oh, Ruth. Look, I got the whole story on him the other night. I know, I know. He's a racketeer. He's no good. You told me all that. Well, doesn't that matter? Look, Ruth. I spend 50 weeks a year slaving in an office. My dates are usually a friend of my brother's or the boy next door. So? So this is a vacation. Two short weeks away from that endless, dull routine. I'm going to make the most of it. Hmm. With Al. Yes, with Al. 
It's fun to be with him. Exciting. Oh, sure, sure. We go to the best places. Everybody knows him. We get the best table. And listen to me a minute, will you? Well, I know how you feel. Believe me, I do. But just let me say something. Go ahead. When I was your age, a date with a guy like Al would have been exciting to me, too. But as you grow up, you learn things. Uh-huh. You learn that fellows you pick up at a dance, at a summer resort, who act like big shots like Al, don't run one, two, six with that friend of your brother's or the boy next door. End of sermon. Oh, Ruthie, you're awfully sweet. But don't worry about me, will you? <laughs> oh, that must be Al now. Oh. Is Al Benton here? Uh, no. You expect him, don't you? Oh, yes. And I'll come in and wait. Well, I... Ann, who's that? I don't know. What? Just the two of you here. What do you want? Al Benton. I told you he isn't here. I'll wait. Now, just a minute. Oh, hey, oh. you... I said I'll wait. In an FBI field office some ten miles from the lake resort, Special Agent Jim Taylor is seated at his desk. He is waiting, too. Waiting for a call from headquarters in Washington. Jim? Yes, Bob? What do you say about some dinner? No, you go ahead. I'm going to stick around here. Oh? Something special? Yes, I'm waiting for a report from Washington. What about? Some fingerprints that I sent down there this morning. Oh. It's on that central bank holder. What's the story? Two men held up the cashier of the bank, took over $8,000. I see. The car they used was found about four hours later across the state line. Uh-huh. What about the two men? One of them is still on the car. Good. Not so good. He was dead, shot through the heart. Yeah. Well, what about the money? No sign of it. Uh-huh. Had there been any gunplay in the holdup? No. I believe he was killed by his partner. That's the usual loyalty of one thief to another. Yeah. Any identification? A dead man was named Johnson. At least that was one of his many aliases. Habitual criminal, long record. How about the one that got away? I've got a fair description on him, but I'm hoping for more than that. What do you mean? I picked up some prints in the car in the back of the rearview mirror. They weren't Johnson's. I checked on that. Those are ones you sent to Washington? Yeah, that's right. Well, Jimmy boy, I wish you luck. Uh, can I bring you back a sandwich? Oh, yes, will you? Ham and cheese on ride. Taste fine. Okay. Coffee? Right. Anything else? Yes. Identification of those fingerprints. Mister. Yeah? Can I go in the kitchen? What for? I want to make some coffee. Stay where you are. Oh. Look, will you do us one favor? Will you put that gun away? Not till after I use it. Please, what is this all about? I told you I'm waiting for Al. Why? You'll see. You're going to shoot him, aren't you? That's right. Oh, no. C- couldn't you pick someplace else? No. Why not? Because I know he's coming here. What time is it? Uh... Almost 9.15. He was due at 9? 
Yes. Well, remember what I told you. When he knocks, you answer the door. Ask him right in and don't rumble. Oh, no. I, I can't do it. You'd better, sweetheart, or all of you get it. Would you mind telling us why you want to kill him? No. Well? My brother and Al were partners. They pulled a stick up yesterday. Oh. After they'd done the job, Al knocked my brother off and beat it with the dough. How do you know all this? Grapevine. I even know he's planning a lamb out of town tonight and take this dame here with him. Anne, is that true? Yes. Oh. Oh, but I didn't know anything about this other stuff. Honest, Ruth. Oh, baby, baby. Wait a minute. Don't answer that till I tell you what to do. Oh, but I... If that's Al, tell him to come right over here. And don't give him no office that anything's wrong, understand? Yes. Okay, answer it. Hello? Is that you, Ann? Yes, Al. Look, baby, I got tied up here down at the inn. Let me send a cab up for you, huh? Well, We I... can leave from here. Uh, I'd rather not, Al. Huh? I, I'd rather you call for me. Well, it'll be another hour. Well, that's all right. Okay, see you later, honey. Bye. Bye. <gasps> Is he coming? Yes. That's swell. One combination on rye coming up. Oh, thanks, Will. And here's your coffee. Good. Oh, did anything break? Yes, plenty. Report on those fingerprints came in right after you left. Swell. Were they identified? Yeah. Belonged to a small-time racketeer named Al Benton. Al Benton? Mm-hmm. Hey, that name is familiar. Well, we picked him up for questioning on that liquor hijacking case last year. You remember? Oh, yeah, yeah, sure. Well, I dug his picture out, and Williams took it over to the central bank. He just called back. Clerks identified Benton as one of the two bandits. Oh, you have been moving. Well, that isn't all. There's more? Yes, I started the quick check on Benton. Found he'd been living in a hotel over on 12th Street. But he'd moved? Yes, over a month ago. They know where he's gone? Well, he didn't leave a forwarding address, but the hotel porter remembered shipping his trunk to an inn out at Lakeside. Hey, that's the summer resort, isn't that's it? That's right. There are only two inns out there, and the first one I called told me that Mr. Al Benton was one of their guests. And all this happened while I was out to dinner? Well, that's the way it goes. You spend endless hours waiting and waiting, and then everything breaks at once. I suppose now you're heading for Lakeside. We're heading for Lakeside. What? You were so interested in the case, Bob, I had you assigned to it. Let's go. Hey, you. Huh? What is it? Sit down. Relax. Are you kidding? Sit down, I said. Okay. Look. Look, I can't stand this much longer than this waiting. Now don't you start again. Well, I can't help it. I, can't. I don't want no tears going when he shows you. Leave her alone, please. What time is it now? 10.15. You should be here. Mister. Yeah? I believe that what you told us about Al killing your brother is true. Uh-huh. Why do you try to settle the score? 
turn him over to the police. Let the law settle it for you. I do this my way. Yeah, but... I don't want to hear no more about it. Wait. What's the matter? There's... There's the headlights of a car coming up the hill. That's your private road, ain't it? No other houses on it? No. Okay, this is it. Oh, no. Shut up. Now, listen to me, both of you. When he knocks, Anne here answers the door. He's almost here. Listen, will you? Invite the guy to come right in. I'll take care of the rest. The car's out front. It stopped. Did you hear what I told you? Did you? Yes, yes. I'll have your girlfriend here with me. If you make the wrong move, it'll be just too bad for her. I'll, I'll do what you say. Quiet. Just a minute. There's no one here. There's no one out there. What is this? I tell you, nobody's You're there. You're lying. Who's the Lucky I saw him through the window. That's why I come in from the back. We will return in just a moment to tonight's FBI file. Now our weekly series of questions and answers on education. First question. Do you have to be a college man or woman to be elected to Congress? No, of course not. Yet in both the Senate and the House of Representatives, four out of every five members have attended college. Four out of five, 80 percent. Think that over, father and mother, and then say to yourself, my children are not going to be denied the advantage of a college education. If you're really sincere in that resolution, only a small sum each week invested in an equitable educational fund will do it. Second question. What is an equitable educational fund? It is a life insurance plan that includes these important features. The equitable educational fund makes sure that money for education will be ready when your child is ready. If you die, the educational fund becomes fully established. If you are totally or permanently disabled, the educational fund continues to build up without any further payment. Educational costs are spread out over many years instead of being concentrated in a few. Last question. How much would it cost to send your son or daughter to college? That question is answered in a memorandum recently prepared for Equitable Society representatives. It tells the cost of tuition, board, and lodging in 192 leading American colleges. It summarizes the long-range opportunities open to educated men and women in 29 industries and professions, such as architecture, dentistry, engineering, chemistry, life insurance, social service, information every parent should have. Your nearest Equitable Society representative will be glad to show his copy to any sincerely interested parent. Call him tomorrow. 
You'll find him in the phone book under Equitable Society. That's E-Q-U-I-T-A-B-L-E. The Equitable Life Assurance Society of the United States. And now back to the FBI file, The Night of Terror. little loss to the community when, as in tonight's case from the files of your FBI, one hardened criminal does away with another. It is a case of one who lives by the sword, dying by the sword. But it is the business of law enforcement agencies to apprehend the murderer and bring him to the bar of justice. For here in the United States, It is the privilege of no one man to take the life of another. This is not a government of a person, by a person, and for a person, but of the people, by the people, and for the people. Tonight's file continues back at the lakeside cabin. The gangster who had waited for his intended victim is stretched out on the floor with a bullet through his head. The two terrified girls stand staring at the body. He... he's dead. That's right, baby. Al, you killed him. What else could I do? He was out to get me. Well, I'm calling the police. Now, wait a minute. We've been through enough tonight. Get away from that phone. No, no. Operator... Operator. Get away, I said. Ow! This ain't no time to be calling cops. Now let's hang up this phone and forget about it. You cheap hoodlum. And make your girlfriend behave, will you? Get out of here, Al. Huh? I said get out. Hey, what is this? We got a date, remember? I found out all about you tonight. What you really are. I don't want any part of it. Well, now wait, baby. You keep away from me. Okay. Now will you go? Uh-uh. No dice, Anne. You're coming with me anyway. Oh, no. Look, baby, you know too many things about me now. You're coming with me, your girlfriend, too. I'll make up my mind what to do with you along the way. That looks like the door to the lobby down there at the end of the porch. Right. I think Lakeside Inn has seen better days. Yeah. Here we are. Go ahead, Bob. Thanks. Well, this is certainly a busy place. Yes, if you like canaries. Do you suppose they could tell us where the proprietor is? Oh, there's a bell over there on the desk. That might be a help. Come on. Okay. All I did is stop the concert. Well, I'll try again. Coming. Coming. Well, what can I do for you, gentlemen? Are you in charge here? I'm the proprietor, yes. We're special agents of the FBI. Oh. Here are our credentials. Well, 
Why are you here? We'd like to talk to one of your guests. A man named Al Benton. Oh, you're too late. What do you mean? He checked out of here just ten minutes ago. Where'd he go? I don't know, and to be frank with you, I don't care. I was very happy to see him leave. Why? He was a most unsavory person. I felt Did all he have alone. a car, he... sir? Yes. Would anyone around here know where he was going? No. I... Oh, wait, wait a minute. Yes? I recall something about a girl he was going to meet. What? She lives in one of the cabins on the lake. Do you know her name? No, sir. Do you know which cabin? No, I don't. Where did you get this information? He ordered a taxi to be sent up for her. And then he changed his mind and went himself. Well, if he ordered the cab, he must have told the driver which cabin to go to. Say, that's right. I'll check with my phone operator. She put in the call. Excuse me, please. Sure. Now, Jim, if he left ten minutes ago, that's not too much of a start. No. We could still nail him at the girl's cabin. That is, if we could find out which cabin it is. That's right. Well, gentlemen, I believe I have the information you've been seeking. Good. The girl's name is Anne Madison. The cabin is less than a mile from here. Can you tell us how to get there? Yes. Follow the road out front as far as you can go. Well, in which direction? Oh, to the left. Thank you. The cabin is on the hill. There's a driveway leading up there. Thank you, sir. Come on, Bob. All right. Stay right here by the car, both of you. I'm dumping this body back here in the bushes. Get a few things straight before we take off. We'll be passing other cars, other people, maybe cops. Don't try to tip them off about our little party. You'll both be sorry. Okay, get in. Go ahead, Ann. All right. Wait a minute. Uh-huh. That car down there at the foot of the hill just turned in your driveway. A car coming up here? Yeah. Oh, thank heaven. Now listen, both of you. Wherever it is, I want you to get rid of them fast. I'll hide here in my car. If either one of you blow a whistle, this gun goes off... for Miss Ann Madison. I'm Ann Madison. We're special agents of the FBI. Oh? We were informed that a Mr. Al Benton was on his way up here to see you. Al Benton? That's right. Do you know him? Well, i sure she knows him and he's here. Ruth! What? Look, we've been kicked around enough. If you want Al Benton... Oh, wait, look out! Anybody hurt? No. He's been in that car? Yes. Come on, Pop. We don't seem to be gaining on him. I know. If this road would only straighten out, I'd get a shot at one of his tires. I think it does after this bend. I'll try it now. Too high. 
He's turning left out to the peninsula. Stay with him. Can't even see him now. Wait till we get up over this hill. You know, Jim, if I remember right, there's a fork in the road up ahead. Yes, there it is. And no bend all. Which turn should we take? Quick, Jim. Uh, turn right. I still don't see him. Keep going. I have a pretty good hunch this is the road he would take. Is that the municipal airport up ahead? That's it. Hey, look, there's his car now. Turn him to the airport gate. My hunch was right. I figured he'd head for here and try to get a plane out. Uh-huh. Give it everything you've got, Bob. We've got to stop him before he does board a plane. Pretty careful in this one. Oh, with guns, you mean? That's right. There's too many people here. Well, look. We Wait. Can... What? Do you see him? Yes. There he is up there by gate four. Come on. No, Bobby's seen us. Yep. He's running through the gate. Let's step on it. Don't you think we should alert the field? We haven't got time. I don't see him. No. Maybe headed for those hangars over there. We couldn't get to them that fast. What do we do, Jim? We can't lose him now. I know, I know. Wait a minute. What? Look out there. There he is, running across the field. Oh, yeah. Look at that fool. There's a plane taking off. Holy he doesn't mackerel. see it. He's running right across its path. What? Bert, look out! Oh, right into the propeller. Pretty awful. Yes. Well, I'd say the file on Al Benton is closed. flight of Al Benton, which resulted in his violent death, saved the state the trouble of prosecuting him for first-degree murder. Your FBI is a business organization, and its business is the apprehension of criminals. The fact that there are 130,000 major crimes committed every month in this country does not indicate any laxity on the part of your FBI. It merely indicates that the same passions that have governed the lives of men down through the years are still vibrant. The same greed, the same lust for power, the same love of ill-gotten gain. When man loses those characteristics, crime will disappear from the earth. But until that time, your FBI will continue to operate as it has been operating. As a faithful servant, protector of the American people. In just a moment, we'll tell you about next week's exciting case from the files of your FBI. Again, let me remind you to check with your Equitable Society representative about the safest and wisest investment a parent can make for his children an equitable educational fund. Without obligation, he will show you the Equitable Society's memorandum on the costs of higher education and some of the opportunities it opens. You'll find your Equitable Society representative in the phone book under the Equitable Life Assurance Society of the United States. 
Next week, we will bring you another colorful story from the files of the Federal Bureau of Investigation, The Curious Coin Collector. The incidents used in tonight's Equitable Life Assurance Society's broadcast are adapted from the files of the Federal Bureau of Investigation. However, all names used are fictitious, and any similarity thereof to the names of persons living or dead is accidental. Tonight, the music was composed and conducted by Frederick Steiner. Your narrator was Dean Carlton. This is your FBI, is written and produced by Jerry Devine. This is Milton Cross, speaking for the Equitable Life Assurance Society of the United States and the Equitable Society's representative in your community, and inviting you to tune in again next week at this same time when the Equitable Life Assurance Society of the United States will bring you another thrilling story from the files of the Federal Bureau of Investigation, The Curious Coin Collector, on This Is Your FBI.